This semester we're talking about the supremacy of Christ in all things. And to kick that off, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke. That's on the sheet in front of you. Each week you'll have a sheet with the passage as well as the discussion questions there in front of you. This is the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, I'm going to be reading in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here, to have life and breath. We thank you for the life that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We're thankful that he reigns supreme over all things and that by your grace and mercy you sent your son to reign supreme over our hearts. So Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, give us eyes to see. We confess that so much of us is blind this morning, blinded by the things of this world. Lord, open the eyes of the blind this morning. We confess that our ears have become dull, dull to hearing the good news of the gospel, dull to hearing what it means to have a new king and a new kingdom. And so help us, Father, to fall down at your feet this morning. Just for these few moments together, before our vocations and occupations and all the cares and worries and anxieties of this world come crashing in, Lord, give us just a few moments together this morning to meet with you, to meet with one another, and in doing so to be changed and transformed in the image of the Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, back in junior high, 7th, 8th grade, I was not the physical specimen that I am today. I was just as much as tall. I'm 6'4". I was just about 6'4". I've been taller than my dad really since the 7th grade. I weighed about as half as much. Okay, so I want you to think about that. Just image that for a second. Maybe that describes your experience in junior high. Imagine a kid who's about 6'2 and why he's like 180. That's pretty skinny. Now, the problem with being that skinny is not just that you're lanky, but if you've grown up in Texas, let alone Waco, Texas, there is a particular pastime that happens after school every single day that you really don't have a choice whether you do it or not. And that thing is called football. If you're a boy growing up in central Texas, doesn't matter if you're a lanky kid, man, you sign up and you play football. And so that's what I did. Everybody else was doing it. And so, of course, I was a receiver. I was taller than most of the kids. And so that was good. But man, I got pushed around a lot. I got pushed around a whole lot. 
The thing is, is my body was kind of awkward. It was developing. It wasn't mature yet. And so it was kind of off kilter. And I, and I knew it. I was aware of it. Isn't that what junior high is like for so many of us? We're so painfully aware of just how awkward of a transition time that it really is. Thing is, I wasn't the only one. The thing about eighth grade football is it's, it's a pretty interesting sport if you think about it. Because I wasn't the only one who was still maturing physically, right? Everybody was. And what's so crazy about an eighth grade football team, and some of you, maybe your kids are in eighth grade and you've seen this, is every kid is a different size. Not just because of genetics, but because of development. And so the thing about an eighth grade football game is you can prepare all you want, you can practice all you want, you can game plan all you want, but there is the most critical moment of preparation before an eighth grade football game is not during practice and it's not during a game plan. It's the 30 seconds where the visiting team shows up in the bus and they start getting off the bus and every kid on the team is looking at them and what are they doing? They're sizing them up. You know, they're looking at themselves, 6'2 and 180, and they're looking at that giant kid who went through puberty when he was like five. Oh, and that kid's got a mustache. How did that happen? And you think, man, there's, there's no way. And suddenly every bit of confidence, every bit of competence just leaves. <laughs> and you, just, you look at yourself and you think, there's no way we can possibly match up. I tell that story this morning to say that I think sometimes we treat faith like an eighth grade football game. What do I mean by that? That as we face our opponents through life, the enemies that we face, the different things that get in our way, the things that weigh us down, the things that make us feel like we're not winning anymore, whether it's something at work that right now in this moment is on your mind, things are not just coming together like you wanted them to on that particular deal, or maybe it's one of your kids who at this point in their life is really rebelling against you and your wife. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe this morning for you it's because you're not married. Maybe for you it's wrestling with just some aspect of faith, these lingering doubts in your, in your heart that you just can't get past. You think, God, why would you let this happen? Whatever it is that begins to shake us, we start to look and we size up our own faith. And we start to wonder, can my faith really handle that? As we face the difficulties and the realities of the broken world that we live in, we wonder, is our faith big enough? And that is the exact wrong question to ask. Because the answer to that question is always no. At times, we look at our faith and it seems so small it seems so awkward, maybe not put together. Maybe you feel that this way. Like, I know some things, but not other things. I feel like my faith in some areas is shaky, and I'm 6'2 in that. By the way, a buck 80 in some other places, and I just feel kind of all out of sorts. What I want us to see this morning in this entire semester, that the question we should be asking ourselves is not, is our faith big enough for the things that we face in life? But is our Christ big enough? And what we're going to see this morning and throughout this entire semester together is that the answer to that question, is Jesus big enough for whatever it is that you're facing? The answer to that question is always yes.
He is big enough. There is nothing that is too big for him to conquer. And some of you, and myself included, need to hear this this morning. There's also nothing too small for him that he doesn't care about. Our theme this semester is the supremacy of Christ. That Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all things. However big they might seem, or however little they might be, he reigns supreme in all things. And for us as men, that should change everything about the way that we see him and the way that we see the giants around us, the things that we face every single day. I want to look and introduce this theme of supremacy to you in three ways this morning. I want to do it from Luke chapter 4. It's an interesting and fascinating passage. I want you to imagine this scene. Jesus has just triumphed over the devil's temptation, okay? If you're familiar with the Bible and the Gospels, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. don't have time this morning to get into why that happened. Why would the Spirit do that? It's a great question, great answer don't have time for it this morning. But what you need to know is that Jesus triumphed. He was not swayed away. He withstood every single temptation because you and I don't have that ability. He did that in our place. And now he has returned to his hometown. Imagine what it feels like to go back home. For some of you, Dallas is your hometown. Others of you, your hometown's not here. And you only go back every once in a while. Jesus goes back to his hometown where he grew up. He goes back to Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue on a Sabbath. In other words, he goes to church on a Sunday. Who's he going to see in church on a Sunday in his hometown? People he grew up with, people who knew him, who watched him as the son of a carpenter, people who he played with when he was a kid. So here's Jesus in his hometown church, it's time to read the scripture. He stands up and he reads from Isaiah 61. This is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty to all those who are oppressed. Then Jesus sits down and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this prophecy, this passage of Scripture that you've heard in church your entire life, this is about me. And so as his friends and neighbors that he grew up with in his hometown of Nazareth hear him saying this, they're marveled. They can't believe what Jesus, this hometown kid, is saying. And so they ask a question. It's a question that I want you to focus in on this morning as we dive in. They say, is this not Joseph's son? Now, why do they ask that question? It's not because they're trying to get at the theological place where the humanity and divinity of the Messiah meet. <laughs> They're not trying to figure out the hypostatic union. They're not trying to ask this deep theological question. No, they're saying, hey, wait a minute. I played stickball with that kid. 
And he just said that the scripture's been fulfilled in our hearing. He's saying that he's the Messiah. He's saying that all of this is pointing to him. Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the son of a lowly and poor carpenter? How can he be the Messiah? You see, they were familiar with Jesus. And they had just enough familiarity with him that they had made assumptions about him. And what Jesus was saying did not match their assumptions. Brothers, this morning I would argue that all of us at some level are probably familiar with Jesus, whether you have been a follower of Jesus your entire life, whether you are just diving back into a church. For some of you this morning, maybe you haven't yet set foot on a Sunday morning, can't bring yourself to do it, but you'll come to a Bible study like this where Thank you for being here. Welcome. Maybe others of you, you didn't really grow up with it, but there's still some familiarity. Because the reality is, in a place like the United States of America, if I say the word Jesus, there's going to be some kind of assumption that's going to pop into your head. The question is, what has informed your assumptions about Jesus? Just how familiar are you with him really? How do you see him? That is the question we must ask ourselves this morning and this entire semester. Is your Christ big enough? Because the Jesus Christ of the Bible reigns supreme. Is this not Joseph's son? The answer to that question is no. This is not just Joseph's son. This is the son of God, the son of the living God, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is supreme over all things. And so very briefly, what does supremacy mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he is aloof. It doesn't mean that he is some puppet master out there in the sky just kind of making things happen and that he is not intimately acquainted. No, he reigns supreme over all things, which means he is sovereign. It means he is in control. It means he knows all things, sees all things. His power is bigger than all things, and yet he's intimately acquainted with you as a son. He knows every part of your frame. And what we'll see hopefully this semester is that his supremacy is not just over all the things out there, but his supremacy, the good news for us this morning, is that his supremacy by his grace has come to our very hearts. So the first way that I think we need to wrap our heads around his supremacy, I want us to see that there is a supremacy to his message, to what Jesus has to say. I want you to look with me at verse 18. This is where Jesus begins to quote from Isaiah 61. This is word for word from the book of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now that word anointed is very important in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament prophets. The anointed one and the prophets was the coming Messiah. Now, what does that mean? Well, it literally means anointed. 
The Messiah was the promised one, the one who would come to be the new king, who would make all things new again, who would restore all that had been broken around them as the people of Israel, who would make things better, who would right wrongs, who would take what is unjust and make it just, who would set people who were in slavery free. This was the person they were waiting for, the long-awaited Savior King, the Messiah. And so for Jesus to say, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying, I'm him. I am the anointed one. Anointed in Hebrew, Messiah, anointed in Greek, Christ. That's why we call him Jesus Christ. Every time that you say the words, Jesus Christ, you're not just saying his name, You're saying his name and then giving his title. Jesus, the Messiah. That's what it means to say Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. He has been anointed. Why? To proclaim good news to the poor. This is his message, to proclaim good news. Now, what is good news? In the Greek here in Luke, it's euangelion. Perhaps you've heard of the word evangelism. That's where that word comes from. I mean, it's just to tell the good news. What is the good news? Well, first, I think we have to recognize, let's just look at what it says. It's good. There's a goodness to what Jesus has to say. It's not just any good news. It's the good news. It's the best news you could possibly hear. The other thing, again, let's just take it at face value. It's good and it's news. In other words, this isn't a new set of rules and regulations. This isn't a new way to do things. No, the law... We'll read other, other places in the Gospels has not been passed away. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law. No, this is news. It's something that not we should do for God, but something God has done for us. It's good and it's news. What is that good news? Well, Jesus tells us later in Luke chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. Maybe you can just write this down. I'll just read it for the sake of time. Luke chapter 4, so later in the chapter... Verse 42, this is after he leaves Nazareth. It says, And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. In other words, they were like, Don't leave Nazareth, Jesus. Stay here. But verse 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. So it's good, it's news, it's For all people, all towns, right, he's going to go and proclaim this, not just in Nazareth, but as many places as he can go. And what does he call it? He says it's the good news of the kingdom of God. Almost every time that you hear Jesus preaching the good news, the gospel, it's attached to the kingdom of God. Over and over again in the gospels, you'll see that he would say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. I bring the good news of the kingdom of God. And so this morning, again, let's just take it at faith value, whether you've been in church a long time or not. It's good news about the kingdom of God. And what you should be asking yourself this morning is, well, why is that good news? Why would it be good news that God is now king? Because I think if we're honest, that's not always how we see him, and not just because we struggle with his supremacy. Now, I think we struggle to see God as king for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is we're Americans. We don't like kings very much, right? We've already done that a few hundred years ago. 
We like being independent, right? We like setting our own laws and our own government. But I don't think even that's the reason. The reason is because we're human beings. And we like to be king. We just do. We like to be in charge. We like to be in control, at least to think that we're in control. And if we don't like how we're doing, then we like to have human kings and human kingdoms. We trust those things because we can see them. We get tangible results. And so the idea of God being our king has never gone well. It's not a new thing. Go all the way back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, the people, they want a king. They want a king. They're desperate for a king. And so we see in the first and second Samuel, they're begging God for a king, and God says, I'm your king. And they say, yeah, 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 we know, but we want a real king, a king we can see, a king we see tangible results. And he warns them. He says, okay, I'll give you a king. First Samuel, he says, I'll give you a king. But this king and every king after him, they're going to enslave you. They're not going to treat you well. They're going to make you their subjects, and it's not going to end well for you. Thousands of years later, not much has changed. No, we don't have a literal king who rules over us. But each and every day, you and I, we pledge our allegiance to lots of little, little lowercase kings. For some of you, those are good things. For some of you, those kings and kingdoms are your work. That's a good thing. For some of your king and kingdom is your home and all that you've been able to build a life for you and your family. For some of you, your king and kingdom, lots of things that are good, but they make lousy kings because they can never do what they promise to do. The good news that Jesus has for us this morning is that the kingdom of God has finally come. The kingdom of God is here, it's now. And it reigns supreme over all of the little kingdoms that are failing to deliver on their promise. And this kingdom of God can do what your families and your vocations and your pastimes and your pleasures and all the things that you chase, myself included, can never do. The kingdom of God has come to make all things new, and it began with the Son. The King of Kings coming down as a baby born in a manger, living like us, tempted like us, yet not sinning unlike us, and dying on the cross for us and rising again so that the kingdom of God would reign over our hearts so that all things would be made new, beginning with us, that we would be made new. His message is supreme over any message of any kingdom that has ever promised you something. His message, the good news of the kingdom of God has come. Who has it come for? He says, I've come to proclaim the good news to who? The poor. Well, who are the poor? Well, in the Bible... We see that God has a special heart for the poor. And the reason is not just because he has a heart for the least of these, which he does. And not just because he's trying to right wrongs and trying to lift up those who have little. 
but it's also because the poor possess certain character traits that he holds as high in the kingdom of God. See, the poor tend to be dependent. They tend to be humble. Right? They tend to recognize that they can't do it on their own and that they need someone or something to come and deliver them. And so he says, I've come to proclaim the good news to the poor because they're the ones who can actually hear it. That's why elsewhere in the Gospels, he also says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just because we, and I'm saying we, all of us this morning, have lots of money, we'd be considered as rich men. It's because rich people tend to also have some character traits that aren't good in the kingdom of God. We tend to be independent. We tend to look at what we have done for ourselves. We tend to think that we are the kings over our own kingdoms. And so Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Will you be dependent and humble enough to hear that Christ is supreme over all things? Second, We'll do this very, very fast. Supreme over all things, his message, his rescue is supreme as well. He also says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Our culture loves the idea of freedom. Everybody wants to be free. And what we typically see in our culture is that we want the effects of God's kingdom. We want things like justice. We want things like goodness. We want things like morality. We just don't want the king. We want to be free. But in the name of freedom, we actually become enslaved. We think it's freedom to worship these lowercase k kings. We think it's freedom... And yet we find ourselves enslaved, just like 1 Samuel said we would be. And so the thing this morning that I want you to begin to wrestle with, the thing about sin is not just that it's immoral and not just that it is against God's commands, it's that it actually enslaves us. And I think we feel this so profoundly when we begin to have a vision of what it means not to sin and we desperately try to stop. So this morning, I want you to just begin to think about what in your life has been a recurring sin? A sin that as you look back over your life as a man, maybe all the way back since you were as a kid, has just reared its ugly head over and over and over again. And this morning, if you are a Christian, you've been given a vision of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to live a holy life, to try to be conformed to the image of the Son. You know, you say, look, I want to repent. I want to be done with that sin. And yet it keeps coming back over and over and over again, even to the point sometimes where you find yourself doing that sin and you don't even want to. Brothers, that's called slavery. That's called being in bondage. That's being held captive by our sin. This morning, Jesus is saying, I am proclaiming good news. Good news that a king who reigns supreme over all these little lowercase kings that enslave us 
and he is stronger, he is bigger, and he is raging a war against them. And he has sent me, Jesus says, to proclaim liberty. That is, he has sent me to set you free. He has sent me to set you free. The Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to some Jewish people who had believed in him. They were Jewish, but they believed he was the Messiah. And he said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Notice what they say. They say, well, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you can become free? This morning, I want you to wrestle with, do you see just how enslaved you really are? Or are you like these ancient brothers? They trusted in Jesus, and yet they said, how could we be enslaved? How is it that you've set us free? And Jesus responds this way. He says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Brothers, you will not find freedom anywhere or in anything in this life other than in the sovereign, supreme mercy of Jesus Christ. So the last thing as you go to your tables, not just the idea of rescue, but also redemption. His redemption is supreme. There's a difference between rescue and redemption. Rescue talks about us being set free from sin. Redemption says that our penalty and the debt that we owe because of sin has been forgiven. And this is what Jesus says. He says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's he talking about? He's been sent by God to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a year of jubilee. It happened to every 50 years. And every 50 years, the slaves would be set free, but not just that, all debts would be forgiven. And so the fullness of the salvation that we've been given in Jesus is that you've been set free from sin and that the penalty for your sin, and Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, the punishment, the debt that we owe because of our sin has been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he conquered it reigning supreme on the cross. He died for your sin so that your debt would be forgiven forever. Your debt of every sin you have ever committed, every sin you are committing right now in this moment, and every sin that you will commit has been paid fully in Jesus Christ. It reigns supreme. And so this morning, brothers, as you go to your tables, I want you to see that there is a danger to limiting the supremacy of Christ. Because when we limit his supremacy, we think that it's up to us to redeem ourselves. It's up to us to rescue ourselves. We think it's up to us to rule over our own kingdoms. And so we must begin to cultivate the discipline to fight for his supremacy to see his supremacy in all things. Because if you notice anything about this passage, Jesus stops his quotation of Isaiah 61 right there. But Isaiah doesn't stop right there. Isaiah goes on. He doesn't just say, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he says, in the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus leave out the day of vengeance? Because the day of vengeance hasn't come yet. 
The year of the Lord's favor has come in the personal work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on the cross. But one day we know that he will return again and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And he will come, yes, to make all things new as he reigns as the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. God, be with us now as we talk about these deep things. They are high, they are lofty. For some of us, they're brand new. So Lord, would you please guide us by your Holy Spirit? Help us to talk about the good news that you are supreme, that you are sovereign, and that you have brought your kingdom come here on earth as it is in the heaven in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his strong name. Amen.